Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Alex. And my name's Nick. You're listening to The Thread presented by Ronnie Scott and Hennessy. On SohoRadioLondon.com. And we are thrilled to be joined by our special guests for today. We have Jan Young Husband, Head of Music and Event Commissioning at the BBC. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Hello, everyone. And Poppy Edwards, uh, my great friend, independent music documentary writer, producer, director and musician. We're going to get to that later as well. (laughs) Hello. How are you doing? How's it going? How's your day going? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 been good so far, long, you know, running around. Just getting started? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's quite out of bed. <laughs> I'm prepping for the screening tonight, which we'll we'll get on to. There's yeah. going to be a screening of your new documentary. VIP exclusive screening, which you guys are coming to, I hope, still. Great, yeah. yes, absolutely. Depends how the interview goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is kind of a sort of unofficial sort of roundtable music industry in a way. Um, and I suppose we wanted to start by maybe talking about your route into mm. music. Uh both of you. Poppy, maybe you could start. How did you get into... Oh. Why did you decide to spend a career <laughs> focusing on music? That's oh, not too daunting. That's quite daunting. I don't know. I've always, always loved music. I think because my, my mum used to play me a range of music from, you know, Kate Bush to Joan Armour Trading um, to Carole King. Just all the sort of 70s things that she loved and road trips with my parents revolved around Endless Eagles and uh, um, all the sort of prog rock, uh, you know, yes, and things like that, you know, endlessly playing. And, you know, I could sing the guitar solo from Hotel California, um, you know, note for note. That's how much I listened to that song. Um, But uh, I kind of just started really because my parents are both artists and they encouraged me to draw and I thought... I don't want to do what you do and I need to get into something you guys can't do, which at the time was playing recorder. And then I moved on to saxophone and uh, discovered I could sing um, by a very good music teacher I had GCSE music to and just said, wow, you've got a singing voice. And uh, it was great because my parents were tone deaf pretty much. (laughs) So they couldn't really influence me and it was all my thing. And that for me as a teenager. Interesting. So So no other musicians in the family? Well, my cousins are. It's like my generation became the musical ones. Um, and then I met you at university and you inspired my jazz ear, thanks to hey, Jazz Society. Jazz improvisation <laughs> course, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Back when you had dyed blonde hair and played oy, bass upside oy, down. Yes, yes, give me more. <laughs> <laughs> Cut. <laughs> I can feel an edit there. <laughs> Jan, what about you? Well, uh, my father, who was a surgeon, um, was actually a most wonderful pianist, and he would come home from hospital and play the piano. And so the moment I could sit up at the keyboard, I was playing the piano too. So I became, I was a trained classical pianist. Um, And actually, I got into it all um, because I started in opera. Yes. So I come from the classical world primarily, but of course, like everybody, you know, when I was a student, I played in a band and kind of really upset all my teachers because they kind of, because you know they'd say, "Oh, you can't play rock; it'll destroy your technique." But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know that old thing. Um, so yeah, so I started in opera and kind of moved over to rock and all the other things from there. Mm. It's really crazy for me to think about a surgeon. I mean, I guess a surgeon coming home and playing the piano is kind of unwinding the brain, I imagine. 
Well, I think my dad grew up in a generation where there was no no horrible things like te- television to distract you in the evening. Right. <laughs> and um, uh, so I guess he came home at night and he just played the piano. But, um, you know, the idea that he would have been a concert pianist would have just not been thought about, I think. But it was his way of re- releasing, you know, the tension of the day, I think. But... You know, music is extraordinary in that way, isn't it? That uh, we can work out our emotions uh, through music, either by listening to it or playing an instrument or whatever. I think that's a very, it's a sort of like therapy, isn't it, in so many ways. Definitely. So from opera production, you went into kind of freelance TV writing and producing and then to Channel 4. Yeah, so basically, uh, yes, I was a freelance producer and writer um, and uh, making programs actually for for Channel 4. Um, I went to the States for a bit, then I came back and um, became commissioning editor at Channel 4, where I was for 10 years. And then the BBC came over the hill and said, do you want to do the music job? And of course, how could you say no? Because yes. it's just the best job in the whole world. Um, so I've been very lucky. I've had the two main arts jobs in you know, consecutive uh, broadcasters. Mm. So, And I've been 10 years at the BBC. 10 years at the Beeb as well. And uh, I suppose you have to be quite diplomatic about this, but what are the differences between working at Channel 4 and the Beeb where you've got the public purse as opposed to...? Well, they share, They have one thing in common. Um, well, they are both public service broadcasters. And Channel 4 receives a licence to broadcast in return for doing a certain number of hours of public service broadcasting. Oh, is that right? And no, uh, the BBC is the public's broadcaster. So you have paid. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. Um, you have paid. But, um, and I think the main difference is that Channel 4, it was to reach an alternative youth, younger audience um, you know, it's uh, it was less about volume and more about, in my case, individual projects that would, you know, break new ground and stuff. The BBC also breaks new ground, but we have a dif- we have a quite a big obligation to deliver a, a much higher volume, like about three hundred hours of television, yeah. and um, you know, the proms, Glastonbury, you know, to reflect to the nation uh, the music that they want to hear. It's amazing. How much? I mean, this is a pretty base question to ask. But how much TV do you consume? Do you like? Do you watch? I mean, do you, do your eyes bleed at night watching stuff before you go? I'm at, if I was in your shoes, I, I imagine I would kind of psych myself out watching everything that I could. Well, I mean, I if I because I work in music all day long, unless I have to watch something or listen to something when I get home at night, I'm a sucker for comedy. So you know, I watch live at the Apollo, or whatever, because I find that. The way to rest myself yeah. is to, to watch something like drama or something completely different. Um, but actually, I listen to music all day long. I used to listen mm. to it walking down the street um, because for me, it's like it's like the soundtrack of everything I do. Is it's I seem to have mm-hmm. this soundtrack going on all the time. Um, Poppy, as a um, as a as a filmmaker. And to two, you're you're sitting in front of two TV and film laymans here. Speak for yourself. Well, (laughs) (laughs) layman and slightly less layman. What's what's the process from a seed of an idea through to, um, I suppose, researching it and then pitching it to Jan through to actually making it? Um, Well, for me, I I really have to um, be a fan. I'm not. I'm not really someone who, if someone rings me up and says it's this great idea and I'm not, um, you know, already a fan or one that when I'm reading about it, I I immediately get excited by it. I just, I don't think my heart and soul would be into 
say for me doing X Factor is just, you know, that's obviously music TV, but it's just not my kind of filmmaking for me and lots of people do it very well but I have to I have to have a love or I have to read about it and understand it and get it on a few different levels for me to to want to do it but normally (laughs) and Jan will probably uh, say this it's all about access because if you if you have an idea the best idea in the world can't really be made with with no one in it so mm. the the rule of, of coming so, to jan is really do you have access this is a great que- idea but yeah, that yeah, is yeah, the yeah. first right. question that's always the first question is people <laughs> right. we get outlines from people and they go i'm gonna make this documentary and mick jagger's in it and elton john <laughs> and, also, and they're all gonna yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. how they write their songs and yeah, yeah, you yeah, write yeah. back and you yeah. go have you really got access yeah. or i'm gonna write a documentary about bill withers who's been in recluse for 25 years so, yeah. so good luck yeah it's that it's uh, it's that's really Not the first rule of commission is do you really have the goods to back it up and I'm sure Jan gets pitched a million ideas every day so that is a really key question so for this for this particular film like how I mean how far down the line were you before you bring it to Jan was it like I have access I have access to the artist I've got the first part of the script what do you think or well I was really lucky Jan brought me to one of the um, reunions of the old grey whistle test um, which was in 2018 and Joan was actually on that program and I happened to be in the, the, the back area where all the screens were in the um, scanner with the head of BBC4 and Jan and that's Cassie and Harrison and I just saw her speaking to Whispering Bob and I thought wow I've known this woman my whole life through her music hmm. but I have no idea uh, who she is as an artist and I would love to do a film my mother played so many of her albums to me as a child and really she's just been a soundtrack to my life and I thought you know what I don't think there's a documentary about Joan and I have loved her so much I think she has things to say and I luckily was next to Jan and Cassian and I said what about a film on Joan Armatrading and you know Cassian went yeah great if she'll agree to it knowing that, that Joan is a recl- is, is notoriously a reclusive. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought, right, that's it. Challenge accepted. And I and I really luckily wrote to her assistant and laid out what I what I saw as a film and she miraculously said, Well let's talk and and a phone call happened and um and lo and behold she said what she wouldn't talk about and what she would, but let's let's speak about it. And it really became a creative process of going back and forth with her, planning out what she would talk about, what kind of things that, you know, really inspired her. And then and Jan was just amazingly enabling and just said, you know, let's meet her, let's talk. Of course, when I brought Joan into the BBC to meet Jan, she immediately sat in a room with all the, the BBC people and just said she wouldn't talk about anything. Yes, that was so funny. <laughs> that was so funny because we... I mean, it's quite... You know, when you're dealing with an, you know an artist um you know we 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 like to just invite them in for a chat um because actually i think it's kind of like so tedious for artists that we want them to sit around explaining what they do um because actually they're just doing it and uh they often say to me oh i don't want to i can't really explain what i do um uh, and they don't you know, everyone from sort of David Bowie to, you know, everyone, they, mm. all, they all say, I mean, David Bowie didn't like to talk about what he did. Mm. But luckily in the archive, he has talked a lot about what he did. So it's sort of, it is there. But as the audience mm. and the fans and the listeners were, you know, you you want to know. Um, anyway, we invited her in and um, 
uh, Cassian, who's uh, the editor of uh, BBC Four, he came along as well. And the first thing she said to Cassian was, "I'm not going. I'm not going to talk. I don't talk about anything." And he actually then had to <laughs> leave to another <laughs> leave to another meeting. And then then she said, "Actually, actually, I will." And there's great credit to Poppy actually that um, clearly Joan trusted. Poppy to start that because obviously mm. she's never really spoken about what she did but on on the one hand I felt you know I was so happy she said she'd do it because mm. it's so important we capture that she's such an important songwriter um, but you know and we want to know how she did it of course um, but on on the other hand I do feel a bit guilty that we kind of got her to do it because I know it's sort of she's outside her comfort zone doing yes. it but yep. you know I want to say thank you to her for doing it because I know yeah, it's going to be just well when you see the film you will see it's it's just a fascinating insight into creativity and how great songs are written mm. and as such an experienced commissioner you you must at those meetings get an impression of whether this is going to really work well or not well I think you the most important thing is to start and then um, mm. I remember being in a, a church in Italy in a little hilltop town called Toddy and I went into the church and and on the wall written in Italian was uh, it said the most important thing is to begin and I think that's right because we do often begin films not knowing quite where we're going to end up um, and I think that's so important especially for filmmakers that they have that the breadth of possibility because you know I know from my own life that you know you set off and you're going to go to the gym on Monday and actually you don't go to a Wednesday or whatever but you know you're you know, life is not prescribed. And so, you know, when you want somebody to talk about their life and they've got to think about what they want to say, it's very important that you can sort of flow with what comes out. And, I mean, I can't actually say who this is, but we've just shot a big interview with a major major artist. And um, the producer rang me and said exactly that. Uh, we've got an hour. Will that be long enough? And I said, well, it doesn't matter. Just do that. And then we'll see what the mm. film is. You see what I mean? Mm. And so some films are sort of organic, really. Mm. Um, I mean, it's obviously different if they're history films where you have a historian or you know somebody explaining something to you from the past. It's a different matter. You can kind of work that out in advance. But you know, when you're asking an artist to talk about their life, you have to sort of flow with where they are in their head, I suppose. And I think a lot of the time, um, artists aren't sometimes, they don't feel like they're involved early on. I always feel like to get that person on side and trusting you really want to like you know talk to them a lot without the camera being on and just plan it with them so that they feel really involved in every single process the thing with Joan is that I ran like everything by her and like we talked a lot before we even really were out the gate with the film because I think planning it sometimes when people do films they sort of there's such a rush sometimes to just quickly do it and make it and if you don't have the artist sort of knowing what's happening at each stage they don't feel like they're actually that involved in the film about themselves mm. it's um, being taken away from yeah, them yeah yeah and it's sort of made and they're in it but they sort of almost don't know how it will be until the end and well I hope don't had a good experience with it but I was just I think it's important to craft like the creative narratives with them so that they don't feel mm. surprised and they feel trusting yeah. but I think if you had to talk about your life you know and you're, you're asking to talk about through their life through what 20, 30 years or something. Mm -hmm. It's quite a lot to remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you don't necessarily remember it in the right order. Yeah. Or yeah. you remember other things. or well, So I think it's, you know, that's why it needs space. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's hear a track by the artist in question. Um, 
Poppy, you've you've given us a couple of tracks that are your personal oh, favourites. Well, yeah. Which one should we start with? Oh uh, well, gave I, it a try. Like a, yeah, I mean, I Down did. Zero. I my my my. Well, I've got so many favourite Joan tracks, but I also didn't want to play the ones that we might all know, which is obviously "Love and Affection" and "Weakness in Me." And I wanted to actually play one off her first album, which for me, uh, whatever's for us, it's called, is just. It just encompasses that early 70s sound where all these songwriters from, you know, Carole King with Tapestry and Joni Mitchell's Blue all coming out. But the British side, apart from Cat Stevens, there wasn't a lot of representation. And Joan was really early in following that and being out on her own as a British artist. And she's working with uh, Gus Dudgeon, the producer for Elton John in his early work. So it really just encompasses that 70s songwriting sound. There's beautiful string arrangements in it. I just I just love it as an album if if no one's heard of it it's the first album I just think it's beautiful uh, it was written by Joan and Pam Nestor and sort of recorded all in one go you know out in France in a studio and um you know Joan uh, Joan wrote all of them sort of while she was in hair um, the musical so on, on breaks and things so it's just it just to me it's just like along with hair and all the <laughs> things that she's talking about in these in these songs You'll see from the documentary, you know, what they're about too. But I just, I love the sound of it. And let's um, give it a try, I think it's called. Two weeks, I went back. So I gave it a try from Joan Armour Trading. And, um, and yes, yeah, so this documentary, what, what's the, uh, the release plan? Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the oh. transmission date as such yet. I'm looking at Jan with I confirmation the, eyes. I think it's the end of September, so you're end of you're September. And, and the and the clue is that uh, generally music documentaries go out on Friday night on BBC Four. Friday night so, BBC Four. So yeah. pick your end of the month Friday, yeah. and you will see it. <laughs> it's become quite a brand in itself. The the Friday night BBC Four thing hasn't it? I've seen some fantastic yeah, things. Yeah, it's a huge. It's the main. The main um, music place yeah. for the BBC. It's huge, the Friday nights. Um, it's yeah. music nights on BBC Four. Because they have like different genres for different days of the week. And mm. uh, music is always on Fridays. I think it's a good night to do because the thing is about the weekends, they get very crowded. And Saturday nights, you know, you're. I know you could argue, you know, music programmes are alternative television, but... You know, you're up against the big entertainment shows on Saturday night. And, and I think also music is so much about, you know, it's the end of the week, it's the weekend. And, you know, Friday night feels like it's the time to, you know, have a beer, have a glass of wine and slop mm. down on the couch and enjoy a good doc. Yeah. I wanted to, maybe that's a good segue. I wanted to talk to you about Glastonbury a little bit because um, we're talking about music. Live music. <laughs> Everybody starts shrugging. I mean, this is kind of... that. Nick and I work in, in kind of concert promotions. Uh, yeah. We put on gigs. So it's a little bit relatable for us. The monster of a festival. Of, of It's easy to relate to conceptually, but not broadcasting it. And I know it's, it seems like a big thing because BBC Broadcast, you, you have so many different stages that you're sending the footage to, mm. uh, that you're filming for. And the quality is very good. Do you want to talk just a little bit in general about how much of a, what the undertaking is to film Glastonbury? Well, I mean, obviously, it's an absolute honour to have Glastonbury on the BBC. It is an incredible privilege. And um, how many years? Unfortunately, that will be ongoing. Um, gosh, I don't, you know, well, in in my ten years and before. So, you right. know, but it's a, you know, a, 
a long and very, very uh, powerful, important relationship for the BBC and the way it's shot and everything about it. So much thought goes into that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're so privileged to show it because I'm sure many other broadcasters would love to just scoop it up. So, mm. um, but, um, yeah, so really um, it, over the last few years, we've tried to enable the audience at home uh, who haven't got a ticket uh, mm. to kind of have um, a really great seat in the house. Um, well, and you've done a good job. Yeah. I mean, I remember well, Nick, thank was, you. <laughs> Nick was texted me straight away about the the Radiohead performance. He's like, have you seen oh, yeah, this yet? Was, you know? That was amazing. But I mean, I you know, and over the years, you've seen we've seen in my time, we've seen some extraordinary things like Adele um, on the Pyramid stage, you know, Ed Sheeran, you know, who'd ever think that be, you know, Ed Sheeran there with yeah. on his own. <laughs> yeah, real cultural yeah. moments. I mean, real. I think I think almost every year has one. Storms. I was about to say. Stormzy was a Stormzy this year. Yeah, and I mean that's what so that's what it's been about. Glastonbury, these great breakthrough moments for and for the artists it's you know the pinnacle of achievement i mean the pyramid stage is i think quite terrifying although you've mm. ever stood on it it's and you look out i remember um when the rolling stones did the pyramid stage and um uh, we were they, we were talking about everything from the lighting to the camera you know where's it how's it going to be and i and i said to them you know you're going to walk out there and you're going to start to sing and you know, 130,000 people are going to sing back at you. Um, and uh, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> I, then I, I decided not to be in the truck for that night. I thought, I have to be in the middle mm. of the pyramid crowd. I, I cannot <laughs> be in a truck watching this. And so I was in the middle of the stage, in the middle of the crowd, and um, right in the middle of the pyramid crowd. And um, they came out and they started and the whole crowd just came back at them. And on the big screen, you could see Keith Richards sort of lurch backwards. And he said to wow. me after, he said, the, 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 the volume of sound is so huge, it like comes at you like a wall. You know, it's like mm. the energy of it. And, mm. um, you know, so, you know, the, it's a spectacular thing that's grown over all these years into something really exceptional. So we now cover all the stages. We stream all the stages. The headliners are live on... TV um, and uh, and so much depends on who's on and when and what and you know a lot of thought goes into how to sculpt it for television uh, obviously and then mm. we changed all the camera positions for things like the presenters because we wanted you at home to feel that you were right in the heart of the action mm. I think that's typical of all BBC events from the Royal Wedding to you know whatever you're you know like uh, Wimbledon you know Sue Barker's right on centre court and and so we tried to take that kind of thing that the BBC does of sort of sit you right in the middle of it um, yeah, that's that, very successful, that, the way yeah. you put the presenters, like you say. It's almost yeah. like they're in the field, and then you have yeah. the acoustic performances that draw you in. Yeah, the acoustic performances is something we've done in recent years, and they've, they've been astounding as well. So, mm. you know, I think every year, like with all the things that we do every year, the, um, you know, the things that recur every year, um, we don't just do them again. I mean, they, we totally review how we do them every year, because it's a bit like a flowing river. You know, it has to it has to keep flowing you know it can't mm -hmm. you can't just stay the same and and also the artists affect what we do you know how we do it and how we shoot stuff there's a i mean our production team on television led by mark cooper and alison howe who are completely brilliant um there's long dialogues with the artists about you know how to make it right because it's very important 
were the Rolling Stones, I remember watching that one on TV. Were they one of the few examples? They they didn't allow a full broadcast of the set, did they? I think they only allowed you to broadcast a bit of it. Who did? Sorry? The Rolling Stones? Oh, yeah. Well, um, no, we did. We did the whole, you did the the whole, whole thing? set live, yeah. It was oh. live. It was live. Yeah. So, so would it be fair to say all artists agree for a, a full? Yes, broadcast? they do. I mean, I, I mean, obviously it's live. It's gone out. So, <laughs> um, uh, sometimes an artist will say, "Actually, I only want six songs, not ten songs, whatever." And that's partly because they they're going around doing a lot of festivals. Um, mm. And I, you know, and sometimes they don't want just everything exposed on television in one go or whatever. I mean, there are reasons. Mm-hmm. Other times, you know, sometimes things go wrong. But actually, some of the most moving times at Glastonbury, like when Coldplay yeah. last at Glastonbury, uh, something went wrong and, you know, the electrics went off or something. And Chris Martin just did a song just playing the piano on his own. And, you know, so even when it goes wrong, then some, mm. you know, they're, they're great artists and they something sort of magical happens. And yes. when Ed Sheeran's gear breaks down, you know, mm. he can still just pluck away and give you a great song. It can become so. an iconic moment. I mean, yeah, I, no, heard that, yeah. I heard that Stormzy wasn't happy about a million things. A million things didn't happen in the show, even though it was spectacular. No, well, I think he was upset that the pyrotechnics didn't go off at this point or whatever, blah, oh. blah, blah. Well, I, I don't, you I know, mean, I think when the artists are on stage, they're hearing it all in their ears. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I gather that sometimes they tell me that what you're hearing in your ears is not what the audience is receiving. And if you think what you're hearing in your ears isn't quite right mm. it can be really throwing but you have to trust that actually it's all right yeah. out there mm. that is one of the problems definitely I think, for them. Mm. well uh to an artist that perhaps hasn't played the pyramid stage before uh keith jarrett which is a choice mm. that you've uh, mm. gone for in fact has he ever played glastonbury if he has it would have mm. been the uh the jazz world stage i imagine yeah. back yeah. in the day or maybe with miles davis or something back I in the day at the south bank about sort of Six or seven years ago, yeah. eight years mm. ago. But, but Jan, you chose a, a track off mm. the Cone concert. Do you want to say why? Well, uh, when I was at Channel Four, um, I made a film with the director Mike Dib, uh, um, with Keith, and it was about improvisation. And um, uh, I don't actually know the film's still out there. Maybe if you Google it, you'll find it. But um, it was the most extraordinary experience to work with him as he is such an interesting man and also so articulate in explaining stuff. Um, And during the film, he actually improvises. And I think when you see him on stage, he's just completely unbelievable. Mm. Um, But this is... I walk around listening to music all the time and and I just love this this album. It's so beautiful. My mother played this to me as a child. Mm. I remember thinking, what Mm. is this as a small child? No, I think (laughs) it's one of the great, great masterpieces of improvisation, yeah. Yeah, I've worn out two CDs now.
That was part one from the legendary Cone concert by Keith Jarrett. And I'd like to return to um, the Joan Armour Trading documentary a little bit again, if I may. Um, of course. I'm, I'm actually reminded, it's, it's sort of reminded me, I went to see a, a screening of a uh, documentary of a similarly elusive artist, D'Angelo, a couple mm. of weeks ago. Mm. And um, the filmmaker there was talking about how she basically got so lucky writing him a letter in the right way that got him to come out of his shell and agree to mm. be part of a documentary. So it was kind of fate, and I, I wanted to ask the same question. <laughs> How did you convince this famously <laughs> introverted yeah. and elusive and enigmatic person to do a documentary where I'm sure so many people have asked and failed in the past? Well, yeah, I actually do know people who have asked in the past to Joan and have failed because I worked with companies you know years ago when everyone said why not a film on Joan and and I and I I can't really answer why she said no to them and yes to me other than I have really been a fan since you know the start of my life with my mum yeah. playing her music and my parents used to go and see her play in the 80s and I I think I made a joke to her on the phone when we when we first were discussing the film that I was probably conceived to love and affection um, <laughs> which made her laugh and and I think I won her over um how did you get her on the phone well I, as I said I wrote to her, her assistant and I just said you know um <laughs> I don't even know where to begin, but your life has basically soundtracked, you know, your music, sorry, has soundtracked my life. And, and you know, this music and, you know, it's, it has really moved a lot of people nationwide and internationally. And would you consider just even, I didn't even say what the film would be. For me, I wasn't going to tell her what the film was because, you know, as much as I can read about Joan's life, you know, I need to to talk to her. You know, you know, off record. What she won't say to journalists at the beginning because I can't assume to know what the film is at the at the beginning. So I, I never say, oh, you need to do a film because it can touch on this, this, and this. Because, but really, you know, she's the one that's going to tell me. So I just said, you know, why don't we just talk? And we had a really honest conversation, literally on the on the phone. Um, just about what she was willing to talk about and how I felt about her music. And I think it's just building a rapport with artists mm. to know that you are open, that you're not going to just say, I'm doing a film because you did this song here and you spoke to me at this point and surely you're this and this and this and X, Y and Z because it's their life. And, mm. and if you've read a million biographies, that, as I found already, the one book that uh, Joan has of her life, which was written without her permission... Hmm. you never know what the artist is really going to be like no matter how many books and art and interviews you have read about them so i just really go That's in with an open slate and say you tell me because this is a film about you you know and i'm not going to come in saying how it's going to be I think that's really crucial and then for me getting access to Joan was you know the BBC very kindly uh, Jan flew me out to New York when she was on tour around America and she Jan just said you know we don't know what she's going to talk about go and just talk to her and record it and see what happens and she very kindly just said yes come meet me in New York and we just did a really sort of sit down in my hotel room actually at the time because we didn't have a lot of space and she just uh talked to me and and with that and that and and those answers I brought back to Jan and and it was for Jan luckily for me enough to go right she will talk to you she will trust you go and make this film 
you know, without a lot to know exactly how this film was going to be. But it was like, yeah. she is trusting you. So you have to do this. This is mm. once in a lifetime. She may not trust someone else. You're lucky in this position. So I'm really thankful for Joan for giving me that chance. And for staying with it. And for staying with it. Mm. Yeah. Because we, we had many, Poppy and I had many a glass of wine <laughs> late at night going, what if she changes her mind now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of... A Has lot that of, happened? In the, like, I mean, well, you know, you, you know, well, Any, she didn't. Anything can happen. You're dealing with films. artists. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anything exactly. Can and really the artists um, also... Uh, alongside Joan in the film the people she's worked with really came out of the woodwork people who never normally talk never want to do um, documentaries they're just the very good musicians like Pino Palladino he said yes. you know I will never do a documentary really I hate being on camera mm -hmm. I really hate talking I can play in front of millions of people on stage but get me in front of a camera mm. and I can't talk but I'm doing it for Joan so there was just yeah. so much love along with Glyn Johns. You know, so many people came out and, and were like, I don't really want to be on camera, but I will for Joan because her musicianship and songwriting is exceptional. And for a filmmaker, that's like, okay, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Everyone, mm -hmm. you know, can articulate, you know, something that maybe Joan can't say in her, and how she writes songs. You know, that she just has this talent. But all these amazing people came forward and were like, yeah, we're doing it for Joan. So there's a lot of love, a lot of musician love. Maybe because it's, she's so underappreciated yeah. compared to her, her stature and her, her greatness as an artist. Yeah, I think she's musically up there in, with all the greats. It's just, you know, for whatever reasons, she's obviously like um, a very talented artist but hasn't made it quite as big as, you know, her her contemporaries like Joni Mitchell and Carole King for whatever reason yep. mm -hmm. but up there musically she is and you know people like Pino just came out and was you know made it work for me and Steve Lillywhite and so many people and all these artists like Michelle and Dago Cello yes. you know mm. she immediately was like I'll make it work for you Martha yeah. Wainwright so many people that you would have thought I'll never get them or they'll never do it or will never fit a schedule in you know never fit it into whatever their busy lives are but they were like no we'll just make it work because we are in love with Joan what do you think you've learned about Joan that you didn't know when you started <laughs> <laughs> I can answer that yeah <laughs> go on Jan well I think to be honest I think like many artists she's just completely instinctive so she's not like a campaigner you know she doesn't wake up in the morning and go right I'm going to write a song about a broken heart or about you know mm. what's wrong with the world um, but she said when we were talking to her she said I seem to be able to write songs that just make people feel and and I don't know how I do that and I think that's because she she's just writing from her life and her own emotion mm. and and has the genius to be able to communicate that to us in a way that because we all feel we're all balls of emotion after all and um you know so she she's not she doesn't seem to be you know it's not a calculated thing it's a totally instinctive thing and i think that's why she's so extraordinary because it's coming out from her soul really and you, that's why i think the music is so touching because she you know she's really opening up the most private uh, bits of her really in a way yeah you think, I do you agree with that i definitely agree with that she is incredibly instinctive she doesn't i she you know, she would just sort of be able to articulate so many emotions by by even just looking at a scenario on the train. Like she would tell me so many stories about watching an argument happen or watching someone in the street and just being able to articulate exactly what they were talking about or arguing about or feeling into a song. And I just, I could never imagine doing that. For me, 
you know I'm a musician in my you know <laughs> outside of work and uh, I just write entirely from how I'm feeling I'm feeling miserable I write a miserable song <laughs> you know I'm going through heartbreak that's what I'm doing but Joan will be watching people watching continually and managing to articulate human emotion outside of her personal life into songs that's like you know a, a storyteller I'm I'm in awe of that because if I don't feel it personally I can't but she can mm. So I'm, she's like the, the nation's songwriter. And that I, I was just kind of standard by. But I think you see with songwriters, they're extraordinary. I once made a, for the BBC, I made a series about songwriting with Guy Chambers. Mm-hmm. And Rufus Wainwright I turned I up. on that one as well. And we <laughs> said, oh, you've got to, each programme has to, ha- you have to write a new song for each programme. And um, Rufus turned up to do his song in Guy's studio. And Guy just got to the piano and he went, oh, I was just walking here this morning and I... This came into my head and I just thought of this. And he started playing something and Rufus started humming and then he started singing and the whole song came out, including half the words. And um, we just made a film with Mark Ronson. It doesn't Ron- work like that every time. No, no, no. <laughs> but then we, but then, but then we, I just made, um, we just made a film amazing. with Mark Ronson uh, talking about how he works. And you realise that that's why in a way they can't analyse it because it is like speaking. It's like thinking up words is thinking up music it and they i mean it just comes into their heads and um and then they roll with it and they go that that's interesting and then they give it to you and say is that interesting and you go that's interesting you send it back with a bit more you know and i think amy winehouse worked like that too she Mm. you know mark would give her a bit of a rhythm or something and then she'd come out with a song so i mean it you know it's like it's that whole thing of the most important thing is to just start because they don't go into the studio necessarily with the whole script or even the words. They mm. just go in with, oh, let's tinker about. I and that's the, the miracle of it, mm, I think. Yeah. Probably the most relatable music has got to be the most instinctive, like like you said, right? Because it's such a human mm. thing. It, it is a form of communication. It's a language in itself. Mm. So, you know, the, mm. stu- the, the ideas that come quite naturally are probably received quite naturally. I wanted to ask you about how much, you know, how many hours were put in... Um, how how much time did you spend with Joan and how much research and how long did this take you <laughs> you know oh well I, I as I said I saw her at this um, reunion of the Old Grey Whistle Test in spring and then I flew out to see Joan on tour in the summer in July and then it was really um, a lot of research over the summer and then by September, she was playing in the UK and I knew I needed to film her concert. So with about a week to go, I think uh, the commission came through and like, you know, commission on Monday, shooting the following Monday at the concert. Mm. So it was a little, a little, uh, little pressed, but it was fine. We, we did it. And, you know, with Joan, she's a really busy woman. She was on tour. She does a lot of music. She's, when she's not on tour, she's writing. Mm. Um, so actually... I had two main interviews with Joan of about two or three hours mm. and then one last one where, where she played a bit of guitar. It wasn't a lot. When you make documentaries, you you know, you don't have like millions of pounds. Um, mm. So you have to be, um, you know, you have to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> cut, cut! Uh, you, you have to really plan as much as you can, what you know, and squeeze in as much as you can in the day and plan, you know, who's essential and what. And with Joan, you know, um, she was a busy woman. So I, in a sense, I didn't have a lot of time with Joan, but I knew what I needed to get when I did see Joan. Right. And that's, that's essential. You can't just sort of go in and go, so 
tell me about your life from right. day yeah. one you know you need to you need to, to have to the prep that opportunity yeah and grab it and grab it well you know and because it'll only give you worse time in the edit later if you've got mm. waffly 20 hours of interview which really you will yeah. use a little bit of because sure. you don't have that time in the edit you make the film in about six weeks in the edit and if you're trawling through hours and hours and hours of interview trying to find the key things you know you're making you know worse time in the edit so you know, you have to, you have to, in a sense, it's better to have an artist who's like, well, you'll give you one hour for one day because you're like, okay, this is it. This is the moment. Mm. I've got to get it all ready and done in one hour because, you know, that's, that's the way they are and that you will fit around their lives. Let's hear a final uh, Joan track. Um, I think the track's How Cruel. Is that right, Jan? Yeah, This is yeah. your choice. Well, Joan... Um she was nominated for three Grammys, and um, and actually one of the Grammys was um, uh, was for um, "How Cruel," and um, and it's an amazing song because it sort of articulates how everyone was feeling. You know, if you were British about racism at that time in the eighties, and um, and I think again, it's like not a campaigning song. It's just so personal to Joan um, living in those times and um, you know it's a you know it's a very very powerful track that was How Cruel by Joan Armour Trading and just to finish by saying the Joan doc that Poppy has made will be airing on the BBC around around about end of September. Is that fair to say? Yeah, on a Friday at the end of September. I'm sure you can look at your calendar and figure that out in the evening. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to I wanted to get this in just for anyone that's listening and uh, maybe is wondering how to how to pitch to you, Jan. Not to add to your workload because I'm sure you're absolutely swamped as it as is. But um, uh, what do you look for in a pitch? Well, uh, very good question. Um, we it it needs to be have a uh, have be an idea that has a good lens into it. So we tend not to do just you know the A to Z biography, but we want an approach, um, you know, a way of seeing a subject. It could be something completely alternative that's going to change the view of how we've understood this before. Archive is very important to our audience. Our audience right. loves archive, so original archive, access to archive. Um, and obviously performance is very important, both original performance, um, you know, supporting new talents are very important. So, and and the also the diversity of the, in the documentaries of uh, the lineup. Uh, right. Because we need, you know, we want to be truly representative of modern Britain. And um, so, you know, the diversity of the lineup and who's speaking and why and, you know, we're, yes. so we all this needs to thought through. I mean, I think if you have an idea and you want to pitch us, uh, if you, you know, if you're a production house, you have to put the idea up on our system called Pitch, um, which you can access through the BBC website. And, um, and if you're not, and now I'm going to get a million emails, but I don't <laughs> get a million anyway, um, you can drop a note to us and say I've had this idea for this what do I do and I mean if you are I mean we love to support young filmmakers new filmmakers uh, there's a system for doing that um, we also have this brilliant thing called BBC Introducing which is an amazing event that we're doing in the middle of October for anyone who wants to be in the music industry uh, there are people talking about you know how to make your first album how to record all the 
top people from the industry come and talk. We go and talk about television, how mm. to get into television. So it's really good to sign, if you are a new filmmaker, to sign yourself up to these yes. BBC events. And then you'll get to meet all of us. Mm. And then we can start the dialogue. Because, um, you know, the, the most important thing is, you know, we can't sort of make you famous or brilliant, but we can give you a start. And, it sounded you know, we, like, I mean, sorry, to, it sounds like it has to be pretty far along. Like, because you you listed a lot of things, it it's not an, an email with an idea that says, "Hey, I want to make a movie about this." It sounds like you need oh, to know, see something I, that that's already. But I think it depends on whether you're like a first time filmmaker trying to get something going, and you could write to me and say, um, "You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of something." You could write to me and say, "You know, I want to make a film about this because the way we've understood it for years is wrong, and I think we need to understand it like like this." And, you know, if it's an interesting sort of lateral thought about something that we thought we knew and this person's going to say, actually, that's wrong because I've worked out it's like that. You know, it's about an interesting mm. opinion about music. Opinions about music is very interesting. Artists talking about what they do is fantastically interesting because then you get mm. the story kind of from the engine room of how it's done. Um, and then for the more, you know, experienced filmmakers, obviously... You know, they understand totally about access and about archive and all that stuff. And sometimes, you know, you'll get somebody will ring me up and go, oh, we found this there's somebody with a garage in Wales and he's got all this blast stuff. And so sometimes we go and just take a look at what that is because, I mean, even, um, you know, Queen, the, the band, they came to me and they said, um, oh, we're just clearing out some boxes and we found a few tapes and you're like what you know and that was my first year at the bbc and they came in on a friday and i was like you found what and then they showed me this stuff and out of that we made a two part two parts um called queen days of their lives and it was extraordinary footage that they kind of didn't know they had in a box in the back of the office or whatever and including you know poignantly and so movingly the last footage of uh, Freddie, obviously. So, so you know, things like that happen, even with the big guys, you know, they kind of mm. go, oh, I just opened the shed and <laughs> out fell this. So, mm. you know, that, that kind of stuff is gold dust for us. Yeah, with yeah. what happened with Simone, I mean, the, the guy just had all these letters and correspondence that Nina had written. And it just made that film, the one for Netflix. But yes, it was just yes. discovered really late on in the film production. Mm. Um, and, and that really made oh, that the film. Very, that was a very crucial part of it. And yeah, yeah, and the guy just had it. And he wrote to, to Lisa, Nina's daughter, who I know well. And I was you know, beginning the the, uh, the start of that film. I was working on it. And it was just something that really made the film. So, you know, whether you're a first-time filmmaker or somebody who, who just happens to strike up a rapport with someone with a lot of archive or you discover something, unseen, unheard archive, is just so crucial for like I think for definitely mm. for filmmakers and and for BBC commissioning because it's just you know a way to um, you know show the past in a different way in different light and and I don't know something that we would never have, have uh, experienced which was Nina's writing or Queen's you know last days of Freddie it's, it will make or break a mm. film I think mm. but, but I think if you want to get started you know it's like when I started there was like two television stations mm. basically where you could do what I wanted to do but you know, now you can self-publish. And, you know, if you make two minutes on something on your phone, mm. um, you know, the whole digital landscape is so huge now. The and barrier to entry has gone way down. The short form, so now, you know, we have BBC Three, which is in, they're interested in short-form content. So, yeah. you know, you don't have to make an hour. Yeah, I You, also, make, you yeah. can make 15 minutes, you make five minutes. Yeah. Um, there's a place for that now, and I think that's so exciting because it gives you a chance to 
mean, like Channel 4, they had the Three Minute Wonders, which then became the Random Acts, and those were just three-minute films. Mm-hmm. So, But there are, you know, the internet, the digital world has provided a lands, you know, the, the platform mm-hmm. for you to just yeah. do that. And you just need to sort of have the nerve to just send and say, here's my here's yeah. my perfect two minutes. Um, I think and it tra- could get shown. Yeah, I think a trailer is very key as well because no matter how much you write to somebody, actually visually seeing, uh, you know, a one- or two-minute trailer of what it's going to be will summarise very quickly what your film is. And that doesn't have to be really really well shot you know i i think you can do a lot of creative things you know i uh, i have to admit this and i don't know if i'm allowed but i shot quite a lot in my in my living room of my drone film because you know it was easy to (laughs) (laughs) because you know you can be as experimental you know i was i was projecting things onto bits of material of joan's image and doing it in my living room because you know wasn't a like a you know million pound budget like you can be creative with things um, and, and you know, a trailer doesn't have to be, you know, of, you know, crazy quality, you know, with, with mm. red cameras and millions of pounds. You can do a trailer with just talking to somebody and, and even just doing it on your iPhone and editing it together just so that someone like Jan or another commissioning editor could yeah. just even get like a little bit of what your film is that's off the paper. And I think that's really crucial to do, sure. even if it's one minute, two sure. minutes. I mean, the interview is the key thing is the... We made a film about the conductor Colin Davis, who who's, who died unfortunately. Uh, John Bridcut um, rang me. He said, "Oh, Colin's very ill," and I said, "Well, well, go and interview him." And uh, Colin Davis is sitting at his his dining room table, kind of with his arms on the table, and he's just talking straight into the camera. Um, it is the most powerful interview. I was going to say, and, intense. And then, and then it got put up for the Grierson's. And we had our first Bowie film up for the Grierson's. And we thought, yeah, we're going to win. And the um, and this Colin Davis film won the Grierson. And um, the jury, one of the members of the jury came up to me and said, I'm so sorry. I know, well, you still won. But they said, the Bowie film, you know, a, a big, proper BBC Two authored doc with all the, tri- all the, the trimmings... Um, and here is just a guy sitting at his dining room table telling you about his life, but straight down the lens in the most mesmerising way. And they said the interview was so astounding, we just had to award it. And so you see, the thing is that it just doesn't have to be a complicated yeah, thing. it doesn't have to be bells and whistles and, yeah. you know, amazingly yeah. shot on red cameras and CGI. It has the to be really engagement. Yeah, yeah, engagement. It's about engagement. human story. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Jan, you've been involved in so many... Uh, uh, commissioning so many incredible things BAFTA winning Oscar winning things um, <laughs> to this day to just coming to the end of the prom season what, yeah. what's one maybe two projects that stand out do you, you mean from the past or the future could be anything Ooh. one and one one yeah. and one yeah. um, well uh, what would I well I suppose um, I think for me Apart from Joan Armour Trading Dark Classic. Apart from Joan Armour Trading Dark Classic. That's the present. That's the present. Let's do past and future. Okay. <laughs> well, I, can I have two things from the past? Because yeah, sure. I suppose, you know, working with uh, David Bowie, sort of when he was alive, um, and then making the two films after those trilogies with the trilogy with uh, Francis Waitley, uh, was just incredible for me. Um, you know, just to get a chance to make three films about the great man and everything. Um, and I think the other thing that was extraordinary for me was the Bross film, um, working with Bross, because that was a film that was about music, about Bross. But actually, it spoke on so many other levels. And I think 
I think it's really important to understand that music is just music. It's, you know, we put it in boxes, jazz, classical, whatever. Mm. You know, love is love in any language. Um, and, you know, so for me, that Bross film was amazing. Um, and um, Matt and Luke said that, you know, grown men, as they put it, going up to them in the street saying, thank you so much um, for showing us, you know, how you got back together as a family. And... Um, I remember when we first pitched the film, someone said to me, well, how can we show this? It starts with them having a row. But it, it was so sort of live and uncut. Um, but it was great to make a music film that re really reached out on mm. so many other levels mm. uh, beyond the music, which, of course, we know music does. And that's why we all get together to listen to it in concerts and festivals. But that was, um, I thought that was astounding that they allowed that kind of access and that then the, the film had such a profound effect. Mm. Um, you know, on many, many men, particularly British men, who felt of a certain age, who feel they've never been able to express their feelings. Um, yeah. So that was yeah, the story behind the notes. It was so compelling, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. Really was, yeah. Yeah. Un unmissable TV over, over the Christmas yeah. period, wasn't it? I think yes. you launched it, yeah. It was one of the most surprising, you know, it was like, I, when I first, I, it was made by Fullwell 73, who were marvellous. Yeah. And um, they said, oh, do you want to have a look at this? And I just loved it from the very beginning. Um, but I think it was a question of will it, will it land, you know, because you didn't know quite how to receive it as a music film or what. But it, it was, you know, it was fantastic, a fantastic experience. Well, I think Bross is a great place to finish this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me um, to talk about what we're doing in jazz in the future? Yes. <laughs> Do you care? No, you no. do. Well, um, I think maybe we could end with a track by you, Poppy. Not yes. to make you too self-conscious. Um, this is a project called Crumbless. Yeah, um, which is pretty uh, really hard to spell and hard to pronounce. Which is a, which is you solo, <laughs> is it not? Or is it's, it? It's me um, as a solo yeah. artist. Um, yeah, and I I decided I don't know why now really to do uh, name myself after a really in a really obscure way, which was Poppy in Celtic, and I sort of loved the uh, androgyny of Cromlus, mm. which is C R O M hyphen L U S, and you know pretty much ungoogleable as well. When you put it in, it just says, "Do you mean Chrome Plus?" So you know, as an oh, artist, okay. I've managed to oh. really make myself very obscure um but it was just born out of the fact that i well poppy edwards is really you know me on a personal you know everyday life and a filmmaker yeah. whereas crumb loss i can be as weird as, and experimental as i would like and um and uh, a bit of an enigma, I suppose, although I've just outed myself. Um, yeah, so that's my artist name. And I just released an EP last year and worked with a great producer, John Tonks, who helped me with this song. And he works with Massive Attack and Nana Cherry and lots of people. And um, I normally write everything and play everything myself. And then he's helped with the mix on this song and had some great... Um, music video artists actually um helped me with the the music video for um strange jealousy it actually got over a hundred thousand views in a week so i was very surprised and pleasantly surprised and happy with that um yeah i think this is the song you're about to play yep strange jealousy poppy jan thank you so much for your time <laughs> thank you very thank much you. guys thank you it's thank a strange you. jealousy <laughs> 